here at the Looking Glass Forum, and we're taking a look at our discussion has kind of led us on a certain trajectory where we're going to have to cover a certain amount of topics, and we were discussing how the the move from the Dark Ages as we transition through time and through the centuries uh, to the Enlightenment into our modern era, um, there were a lot of drastic changes, and the transformation of the medieval religio-cultic system of imperialism would necessitate a new world order and the program of political thought which had reigned in the dark ages was underpinned by the absolute authority of the roman religion which was incontestable and it was growing universal dictatorship of the papacy which would represent a mercurial and changing attitude subject to the arbitrary whims of the rapid procession of the bishops of Rome, who quickly oversaw the doctrinal proclamations, which would fabricate the religious orthodoxy needed to arrive at the apotheosis of the seat of the papacy. And anyone elected to the papacy by the College of Cardinals was bequeathed the power to cast souls into paradise or hell based on that belief structure. I think it's crucial that we analyze this curious power of religious dictatorship that we see in the papacy. And we cannot overstate the enthrallment of the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, the medieval vassalhood, the peasantry, were so completely subjected absolutely to the sovereign nobility who was coronated into their existence but by the incontestable religio-cultic orthodoxy of the Roman system of religion. The ubiquitous uniformity was obligatory, and even to believe differently and to hold sacred within yourself, within your own private conscience, a matter of doctrine not in line with the canon law was a heresy punishable by death. And so this takes the idea of thought police to a whole other level. And it wasn't even comprehended by the common man that he might take his own personal liberty, his own liberty of conscience his own physical life that it ever might be his own, that he might be able to achieve independence, political independence from the state, from the kingdom, and from the power of the principality over them. And it is crucial that we understand that men were not allowed to hold private beliefs that differed from that of the state, and that this was abject bondage, religious doxology, and inherent intellectual poverty which enslaved humanity so completely that men would be executed who learned to read without the strict license of the nobility to whom their lives would be lived in service. As a matter of reflexive personal honor, they would serve their liege lords until death and thought nothing of their own personal liberty or private so or personal sovereignty. And this would come up later in the Americas when they would, when they would free every man and paradise was closed to all who questioned this arrangement 
of the world, just as all those who died in the Crusade Wars trying to take Jerusalem so that it would be controlled by the Vatican and by the popes. Um, it was declared by the, the papacy that anyone who died in this undertaking and the Crusade Wars would be whisked instantly by angels' wings to paradise. And so we must ask ourselves, what is slavery? And how does a tribe or a nation or, or a group of people become enslaved? So I want to take a look at another uh, book here that is published, and you can get it in some places online. It's called The Popes, the Catholic Church, and the Transatlantic Enslavement of Black Africans, 1418 to 1839. It's by Pius Onyemeki Idio. So we're going to go down here, and this is going to be published pretty recently, 2017, and uh, Zurich. We really can't, I can't really get into the entire book, but I'll, I'll, the introduction is really interesting to read. One, agitating issue and the goal of this work. The preliminary thoughts on the subjects of this work. The transatlantic slave trade during which the black Africans were enslaved is widely known as the worst type of enslavement and the wildest type of man's inhumanity to man in the history of humanity with its attendant consequences on the lives and image of the people of the black continent. The course of its operation spanned a total period of more than 400 years. These were, for black Africa, not only lost centuries, but also centuries of organized international condemnation and murder of millions of her innocent and defenseless sons and daughters, years of political crisis, economic setbacks, social unrest, and development stagnation, and all of its ramifications. These were years when the Requiem for Black Africa was not only composed by the Church and her Catholic kings, the so-called Athletes of Christ, especially the kings of Portugal and Spain, but also they were years when the said Requiem was sung to the hearing of the whole world by the Christian slave merchants and their home governments in both Europe and America. And we might say at this point, this is Roman Catholic Christianity and not Protestant Christianity, which is a development that would happen in the 1500s and ultimately would lead to the founding of the Puritans and the Baptists in America. And those doctrines will ultimately lead to the ending of the slave trade. And that's Protestant Christianity. So to get back to it here, these were indeed years when the bottomless pit of the denial of the humanity of black Africans was dug with the shovel of racism, religion, and superiority complex of the white race over the black African race, as propounded and propagated by some Western Christian philosophers, theologians, and racist anthropologists from Europe and America, Friedrich Hegel, John Carroll, George Glidden, names off a few people here. Little wonder, then, did the Nigerian-born Theophilus Okir, professor and director of the Wellen Research Academy in Nigeria described these years as, in quotes, 400 years of European Christian cruelty of papal and theological sanctioned inhumanity that afflicted on Africa a loss in men and happiness and freedom and dignity. But true enough, the transatlantic slave trade was not the only slavery that existed in the history of man's inhumanity to man. The knowledge of the history of the slavery has been able to reveal that there were other enslavements in the history of humanity, such as the enslavement of the Jewish people by the Egyptians the Indians of the West Indies by Spanish conquistadors, the ancient Athenian and Roman slavery of people of other races. I don't know if there were other races. I mean, if there were 
other than Athenian and Roman, they were just other nationalities, as well as the unfortunate Arab enslavement of North and Sub-Saharan Africans. But this transatlantic slave trade is different from all of these. Its history has indeed made it to be unique in itself, unique in the sense that skin color was a great factor to reckon with in determining who was to be a slave of this trade. This fact alone reveals the racial character and cruelty of this slave trade. It was the only slave trade in human history that made the black man its only victim and reduced him to a chattel. It was the only slave trade that carried its victims in ships of different sizes and shapes bearing the names Virgin Mary, Jesus Christ, St. Thomas, St. George, and other saints of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Its uniqueness lies once more not only in the cruelty of its perpetrators, but also in the magnitude and intensity of its execution, expressly the cruelty of this trade. T. O'Kir said in very lamenting tone, Never before nor since has there been a commercial traffic in human beings of that magnitude, intensity, and duration involving such distances between four continents and lasting over 400 years. Never did commerce ever involve so much contempt, so much cruelty, and so much inhumanity tolerated or even supported by some of the highest moral minds and authorities championed by the most Catholic countries of Europe. In his own reaction to the cruelty of the slave trade, the recently proclaimed saint of the Catholic Church, Pope John Paul II, once described this baneful trade as an enormous crime and an ignoble commerce. In comparing the evil nature of the slave trade with the cruelty of the Holocaust perpetrated against the Jewish folk by the Nazi regime, interesting word there, folk, the German-born sociologist and economist Alexander Rousteau describes this trade as follows. It is, by difference, the most cruel and bloodiest chapter of the document ever in the history of, of the world before 1933. This most cruel and bloodiest crime is the first ever recorded injustice which black Africans and her sons and daughters suffered from the hands of the leadership of the Catholic Church. To talk about it today is to talk about the very landmark of the tragic and regrettable event in the history of the black man on earth. It is to talk about the forceful deportation of millions of black Africans in an inhumane and degrading manner in ships of human cargoes of all sizes and length across the dangerous Atlantic Ocean in a journey of no return to this so-called new world discovered by Christopher Columbus in 1492. Millions of these innocent, poor victims of the slave trade died while crossing the Atlantic waters. Those of them who landed safely to their land of perpetual enslavement were reduced to chattels and forced by their fellow human beings to work under very excruciating and unbearable inhuman conditions never seen before in the history of human labor and commerce and were worked to death in their millions just for the economic advantage of their slave owners. Unfortunately, indeed, the perpetrators and masterminds of this cruelty and holocaust against black Africans were not just the white planters and settlers of the Caribbean and the North American islands in the New World, but mainly Catholic kings and princes of both Spain and Portugal as well as the governments of other major European enslaving Christian nations such as Great Britain, France, Holland, Sweden, Denmark, etc. Also, in recent times, renewed interest in this area of study has revealed that the most respectable and holy office of the Church and the highest moral authority in Christian living the world over, the popes did not only join in the bandwagon of those who masterminded this cruel act against the black African race, but also blessed 
gave approval to it, and effected the actualization of this enslavement through the Catholic kings of both Spain and Portugal, respectively. Today, this kind of revelation found expressions here and there on the pages of some historical books and magazines. For instance, in April 2000, an edition of the New African Magazine, which carried the reports of an alleged church's involvement in the transatlantic slave trade, this magazine stated as follows, It is instructive that the earliest European slavers of Africa, the Portuguese and the Spanish, taught and got the blessing of the Pope in 1455. Following the views of the publishers of this magazine, Opiophilus Sokir asserted that the church supported the slave trade and gave her blessings to the evil of this long duration of black African enslavement. This position is brought to limelight when he said, Although these 400 years impoverished Africa to enrich Europe, they have also inflicted on Europe and Christianity guilt and shame eternal. So much for the role of the church and churchmen in initiating, encouraging, and blessing the first major injustice that Europe inflicted on Africa. By initiating and blessing this enslavement, is not the end of the road in the church's accusation of involvement in this enslavement. Other areas of accusations of involvement of the church and her leadership in the enslavement of black Africans abound. In the first instance, the church has been accused of having profited materially from the blood money accruing from this trade in human beings of black African origin. The Portuguese missionaries, especially the members of the Jesuit order sent by the church to evangelize the pagan natives of the West African Atlantic, did not only take active part in the slave trade, but they also lived from it, gravely profited from it, and depended heavily on it for their sustenance. Millions of the blood money accruing from this baneful traffic in humans were invested in providing infrastructures for the education and training of priests and seminarians belonging to the Jesuit congregation and other women and men of religious orders. More so, a greater portion of the stipends emanating from the mass baptism of black African slaves hurriedly carried out by these missionary priests before the embarkation of slaves for their journey of no return to the West Indies was deported to have flown into the coffers of the Catholic Church in both Portugal, Spain, and Rome. In the words of the historian François Lois de Vega Pinto, the state religion, which is of course Catholicism, which is in Portugal ruled by the Inquisition up to the 18th century, not only gave its moral sanction to the traffic in human beings through baptism, but also made a profit off of it. So that's very interesting. They were baptizing the slaves as they enslaved them. That's interesting. Maybe there's a correlation there. Also, the historian Thomas Hugh recorded that the king of Portugal made two million rays in 1506 from the slave trade from taxes and duties paid on each slave. Secondly, the church's attitude on injustice towards black Africans during the slave trade raises suspicion over her involvement in the enslavement of black Africans. This fact is brought to the limelight in the manner of approach given to the enslavement of the Indians of West Indies, whose enslavement was going on at the time when black African enslavement was being perpetrated by the same European slave merchants and their home governments. Surprisingly, indeed, the Indian enslavement did not last long before it received due attention and condemnation from the popes and home government of the Spanish slave merchants and conquistadors, owing to the indefatigable efforts of the church through her apostolic writings and office, as well as the determined efforts of her missionaries in the Caribbean islands, led by Bishop Bartolome de la Casas, 1484-1566, and sometimes called the Apostle and the Liberator of the Indians of the West Indies, the enslavement of the Indians was denounced and abolished by Pope Paul III in 1537. Pontificate was between 1534 and 1549. And by so doing, the Indians 
were timely saved from the evil acts of the Christian slave masters from the Catholic nation of Spain. But in the case of the enslavement of black Africans, a changed attitude was conspicuously noticed. The aforesaid apostle and liberator of the Indians turned a Judas Iscariot and betrayer of the black Africans overnight by becoming the very one who suggested to the king of Spain and Pope Paul III to replace the Indians in chains of slavery with black Africans. The leadership of the church and all other defenders of the enslaved Indians took a very different view and approach, although as far as the black Africans were concerned, their active engagement in the condemnation and liberation of the enslaved Indians turned into a deep silence and passivity. The papers and inks from the papal desks and office in Rome used for the liberation of Indians from their enslavement got dried up by the wind as soon as it was the turn of the black Africans. Rather than engaging herself in defending the black Africans, the church and her leadership declared them enemies of the Christian faith against whom wars are to be made and as those who should be punished for perpetual enslavement. But the agitating question troubling every mind that reads or hears about this injustice has been, why this glaring injustice against the enslaved black Africans by the Catholic Church and her popes? What led the Church and her popes to declare black Africans enemies of the Christian faith, and as those placed under perpetual enslavement? Finding an answer to this mind-boggling question is part of the force driving and motivating this academic study. But that is not all about the motivating force of this academic inquiry. One and a half centuries have passed since the transatlantic slave trade ended and the activities of the Catholic Church throughout the duration of this enslavement have been kept in the dark. The crux of the matter is the continued attitude of the Catholic Church and her leadership even after the slave trade ended long ago and refusing to acknowledge her guilt and accepting responsibility for her involvement in the enslavement of black Africans during this slave trade. This refusal has led the church's leadership to downplay the gravity of the church's complicity in the enslavement of black Africans, thereby initiating and promoting the culture of amnesia and joining the governments of the enslaving nations of Europe and America in spreading widely the propaganda that black Africans themselves are the architects of their enslavement and therefore are to be blamed for the shame and evil of the slave trade. And as a proof of this fact, more than 95% of all the academic inquiries made so far by the Western Christian authors and historians in the history of enslavement of peoples since the discovery of the New World focused attention solely on the enslavement of the Indians of the West Indies, but little attention has been paid to the Church's role in the enslavement of black Africans. Those of whom have reflected on this subject matter have treated it in passing, and some in their bid to shield the Church from from culpability and shame from this baneful traffic in humans ended up with apologetic writings rather than producing an in-depth academic work on this very subject matter. A few examples here will help to grease the road in driving home this point. In the Center for African Affairs of the Julius Maximilian University in Würzburg in Germany, under the theme, Slavery as a Global and Regional Phenomenon, in June 27, uh, 2013, this attitude was clearly manifested at this intellectual summit which dwell more on the topic of black African enslavement, and none of the chosen topics listed for discussion focused attention on the part which the church and her leadership played in the enslavement of black Africans. And as one of the participants of this conference, I raised the issue of the conspicuously missing topic that should have reflected the part which the leadership of the Catholic Church played during this enslavement. To my great surprise, the president of the organizing body of this conference, and as well a professor of law at this university, gave a reply that beat my imagination by replying to the hearing of all participants that the inclusion of such topics was purposely avoided in order to escape censorship and query the Catholic authorities and patrons of the aforesaid uh, university. But why should such a 
discussion be classified as a taboo and a no-go area in an intellectual discussion of this nature dealing on the issue of the enslavement of black Africans, even in the famous land of Reformation? Is this action at this time present not a rebirth of the practice in vogue in the 16th and 17th centuries when those that attempted to raise a voice of protest against the enslavement of black Africans, either in the form of literary works or homilies, were termed enemies of the Catholic Church? and at their works prescribed and condemned in the index of prohibited books in the Vatican secret archives? How long would it continue to remain in the dark that the Catholic Church and her leadership took active part in the horrendous black African enslavement? And when will a meaningful academic inquiry commence to investigate historically and objectively the part played by the Church and her leadership in the theater of this enslavement and the battering of the image of the black African people? It was this sort of mind-boggling question raised in the face of this kind of attitude of the church and her leadership towards black African enslavement, as well as the various accusations of her involvement and complicity in the transatlantic enslavement of black Africans, that the difficult task of carrying out an academic inquiry into this area of study has been undertaken in this present work. The choice of this topic for this academic study did not come so easily based on the fact that the Catholic Church was to participated in this heinous slave trade that selected only the black man as its victim and object of transactions. Other major denominations of Christianity also took part in the transatlantic enslavement of black Africans. This being the case, one might then ask the question, why then this topic? As important as this question might appear, it is significant also to note here that this work does not dispute the fact that major Christian denominations also actively participated in the enslavement. And this, the reason for this choice of topic in this academic study rested on the fact that the very beginnings of the slave trade in 1444, the Catholic Church, through her leadership, was the only major role player and a great force to reckon with in determining course and direction of events in the entire Christian Europe. The Catholic Church of this period in history was not only at an epicenter of religious, moral, and academic and social life of the Western Christianity, but also the highest instance in the political barometer of the entire known world under the leadership and the unchallenging authority of one man, namely the Supreme Roman Pontiff, Vicarious Dei, and the visible representative of the master of the entire universe of the world of men and women. This sole position occupied by the visible head of the Catholic Church in the name of God and of religion gave the Catholic Church the responsibility of deciding the turn of events in the world of men and, and women throughout the Western Christendom. It was in the same position of being a supreme judge over all persons that the popes had control over the Christian kings and princes in whose reigns of temporal power and political and social lives of the people in the Western Christendom depended. That means the leadership of the Catholic Church possessed the moral, political authority even to decide whether the transatlantic slave trade was to be or not to be. In this sense, therefore, to undertake in this academic work a study of the role played by this great and powerful institution in the enslavement of black Africans, which began with the authority and support of the supreme head of the church, is, in my humble opinion, a gigantic subject of academic research that is worthy of undertaking. That is what this work is all about. It is my conviction that the transatlantic slave trade is part of the Christian history, and that a, a full-scale study of the part played by the Catholic Church and her leadership during the slave trade has been neglected for too long, and as such should be no longer be suppressed or be kept in the dark corners of history. Hence the choice of this topic of this work. Okay, so that was a mouthful, but we can see right there that the author has a very valid and a very powerful point to make. So a lot of apologists are going to point back to 1839 in a bull by Pope Gregory the Sixteenth 
in supremo apostolatus. And I find this this attempt uh, by the, the Vatican at this point to try to whitewash its history to be very outrageous. And we have to realize that in 1803, France had already abolished slavery, and in England and the British had already abolished slavery. And so we're really approaching this point of political intensity within the United States, because the states had still had to grapple with the issue of slavery. Many of the colonies, early colonies, and later the states, the northern states, were going to make slavery illegal, and it never was legal within their territories, and some of the other southern states had African slaves. So the whole issue was becoming toxic. Many Protestant Christian churches were caring for a lot of the slaves who were escaping into the north. You'd have a lot of Quakers and others, abolitionist movements who are who understand that, that the institution of slavery is, is a collapsing and wretched institution. And we realize that we're approaching now in 1839, we're just 15 years away from the huge conflagration of war between the states. And in this political maneuver, Gregory XVI would say that slavery is absolutely unworthy of the Christian name. And we have to look at this move as a cynical demagoguery of the whole wretched apparatus of human bondage and debasement, which 13 centuries of popes in succession had built with direct intervention to ensure that the sub-Saharan African slave trade and the Barbary Muslim slave trade would be sustained for centuries. Any time in a thousand years of support of chattel bondage, the papacy, with some 80 popes or more failing in that time to find a conscience on the issue of human enslavement. These guys ran the dungeons of the Inquisition. Perhaps it's not a surprise that the issue of slavery was not a political issue until 1839, just before the Civil War. And as we had already stated, France and England had already abolished slavery by that time, so the magisterium was finally catching up and saw the writing on the wall, although the Pope Pius in 1863 would send financial support and kind words of encouragement to Jefferson Davis as he built up the Confederacy to fight the Union and to keep their slaves. There's a huge load of hypocrisy here in their position, which seems that they took a position in 1839, very late in history, to try to cover their ass, to try to shield themselves from criticism in the future. All right, we're just going to take a little break right here and hear from our sponsor. Thank you. Hey, I want to let you know about the hottest styles and latest fashion trends at Wendy's Boutique. Just go to wendyslimited.com, wendyslimited, all one word, dot com. All right, we're back here at the Looking Glass Forum, and we're taking a look at this really interesting book here, and I want to continue on just a little more. Numerous historical books have been written on the theme of the transatlantic slave trade, establishing the account of its history, the part played by the kings and queens, princes, companies, and their shareholders, as well as the governments of various European countries, enslaving nations, and other major institutions who played roles in the execution of the baneful traffic in human beings of black African extraction. In order to avoid a repetition of what has been done in the area of the study, this book therefore is not an account of the transatlantic slave trade. As such, it has restricted itself to discuss the role of the Catholic Church, especially the papacy, in the establishment of this trade, beginning with its cradle stage in 1418, when Portugal began to nurse the idea of exploring the West African Atlantic coasts with the major intention of wresting control of the wealth of the West African trade in gold, silver, ivory, and spices from the hands of the Arab Muslim merchants who were controlling the land route to the very source of this West African wealth. It continued with the recognition of this politico 
economic ambition of Portugal by the papal office with the bid to spread the gospel of Christ to the pagan regions of West Africa and fighting the Saracens in North Africa who were the arch enemies of the Christian faith. It was in her bid to protect her possessions in the discoveries already made in West Africa that the papacy was brought into the scene of this trade, thereby providing to Portugal the legally recognized rights of monopoly control over this trade and other territorial possessions in West Africa. The support continued until the Portuguese began to forcefully kidnap and capture the innocent pagan and natives of West Africa, which were brought into Portugal and sold as slaves in 1444, an action that was blessed and praised by the papacy as a heroic step taken towards the salvation of the souls, the poor souls of those black African captives. It was in the light of this, that the papacy even gave her blessings and support in granting to the kings and princes of Portugal and their successors and perpetuity the right to force both Saracens and the black African pagan natives into perpetual slavery. This papal decree established this right in 1452 and in 1454, respectively, was defended by the papacy and was never retracted until the, the transatlantic slave trade was internationally abolished in 1807. The only condemnation of the slave trade from this side of the papacy came in, 18, in 1839, after the major European enslaving nations had agreed to abolish slavery in their overseas nations and the Americas. That means, then, this work covers the role of the Church and her leadership from on start of the Portuguese ambition to control this wealth of West Africa trade in 1418 till the time when the major condemnation of the slave trade was ever made by the papal office in 1839. And as we said, that was very late in history, and it was, uh, it was advantageous to the papacy at the time to just go ahead and uh, deign to say a little blurb about how, you know, a little bull about how uh, slavery wasn't uh, very in line with Christianity. But then, of course, 20 years later during the Civil War, the next pope would support the Confederacy, support the, uh, the rebellion against the Union, and, of course, supported the slave trade. Section 3 of this book, which was divided into three chapters, treated the very core issue and the very goal of this book in order to establish the part played by the Church and her leadership during the transatlantic slave trade. The work went into a historical inquiry into the political and strategical positioning of the, the papacy in the international politics of the high and late medieval periods in relation to the issues concerning black Africa in cooperation with the political and economic inventions, political and economic intentions of the successive kings and princes of Portugal in West Africa from 1418 to 1839. This was embarked upon with the certainty that the very role of the Catholic Church in the enslavement of the black Africans is to be pinpointed in this papal politics of the late medieval times that crystallized in the numerous famous and historical apostolic documents of Rome's magisterium under the control of the Renaissance papacy written in support of the political and economic ambitions of the kings of Portugal and West Africa under the pretense of crusade against the Saracens in Africa. This was embarked upon as, so as to find out how this papal politics influenced papal decisions in Africa, they aided the slave trade immensely and determined the unmistakable silence and laissez-faire's attitude of the Holy Office towards the enslaved black Africans during the course of this trade. As we're moving forward here to take a closer look at the historical progression of the transatlantic slave trade, we have to examine the rise of Islam as it develops to fully control Arabia and Persia. The dominant religious system had heretofore been Zoroastrianism and Mithraic traditions, which were very ancient. 
The appearance of Muhammad would bring an end to diversity within the religio-cultic traditions of antiquity, and the whole region was forcefully converted to Islam by the sword. This is going to be in the 7th century. Ultimately, the taking of slaves and the imposition of the slave trade itself were, and still are, immovable tenets of Islam. Islamic religion requires slaves to be taken and sold as a matter of strict Quranic doctrine. Slavery is Islamic. Slavery defines Islam. While the papacy used slavery and then conveniently reordered its outward policy to criticize slavery when it was politically tenable, deciding arbitrarily that slavery was not Christian, Islam has no such remedy. Slavery is cast so completely within the doctrinal thesis of Islam that it simply cannot be removed. Slavery is a constitutional right of Muslims. Just as slavery is a requirement of jihad, and thus it is sacred to enslave infidels. In many ways, the World War One era battle with the Ottoman Empire, which ended the caliphate, was an outgrowth of Islamic refusal to give up slavery. While Portugal sought the blessing of the papacy to get involved with slavery in 1418, they were arriving on the scene rather late in history as the barbaric practice of the slave trade had been fully operational within Islam since its inception in the 7th century. Muhammad appeared before and around the year 666, so for 900 years, slavery was implemented as an Islamic weapon of jihad before the Europeans ever got involved. So we're going to just jump in here. We have another book that we need to kind of take a look at. It's called Islam and the Abolition of Slavery by William Gervais Clarence Smith. I think it's coming out in Oxford Press in 06, 2006. And we'll just begin here. I'm on page 162. The Senusia purchased Africans from caravans. There is no evidence that Al Sanusi ever preached against slavery or the slave trade. In caravans from what I to Benghazi brought many slaves in Al-Sanusi's time. Some Europeans allege that Al-Sanusi benefited from the infamous commerce. They also accuse him of supporting Ad al-Qadir's jihad in Algeria with its ambiguous impact on slavery. Moreover, the policy of freeing slaves to act as missionaries may have been initiated by his son, Muhammad al-Mahdi. Under the protection of al-Sansui's successors, the slave trade undoubtedly blossomed along the Wadai Benghazi route, which lasted longer than any other trans-Saharan artery. The British consul in Benghazi said in 1892 that slave dealing is considered by the Muslim population a perfectly legitimate trade. The Sultan of Wadai to the south and a Sansanusi adept regularly sent slaves as gifts to the head of the order. Although the Sansanusi did not directly engage in the trade, slaves became embedded in the state. There were about 100 black slaves acting as domestics and herdsmen in the Central Lodge in the 1870s. In 1877, each lodge contained black slaves, camels, and horses. When Ahmed al-Sharif succeeded to the leadership in 1902, the San Sanusi drifted further away from the ideals of the founder. Known for his love of luxury, Ahmad asked for supplies of eunuchs and numerous young, skillful, and pretty female captives. He also employed many slaves as agricultural workers and soldiers in the growing network of lodges at Borku, Northern Chad, which became his granary. This hence, Nusi became more violent after the 1911 Italian invasion of Libya, justified in part by the need to repress the slave trade. Ahmad al-Sharif published a call to jihad in Cairo Journal in 1913. 
1914 drawing heavily on al Tasuli's 1830 Moroccan treaties, and thus probably condoning the enslavement of the collaborators. After the dust had settled, slavery remained part of life in San Sanusi Oasis. The Sufi contribution to Tunisian abolition was ambivalent. The Shadili order encouraged Ahmad Bey to care for the poor and needy, possibly influencing his 1840s abolition decrees. Conversely, rebels in the great 1864 revolt sought to reverse the abolition of slavery, and they are led by Ali B. Gadahum. We'll drop down here to another page. West Sumatra's Padre Wars raged from 1803 to late 1840s. I'm, I'm making an effort to point out here that it was very late in the 18, 1800s and 1840s after Europeans had already went through the process of abolition and were approaching the Civil War. We were already coming to our, our senses and having a conscience regarding slavery. It was not really happening in the Islamic world. The Civil War sprang from numerous abuses, including bandits enslaving free Muslims. Young, young Ming Kebao, radicals of the Shatari order influenced by literalist ideas, proclaimed a jihad. Local tradition and Dutch documents attest that the white time of the Padri marked a high point in enslaving indigenous bad Muslims, or at least their womenfolk. Padri forces also seized Animus Batak to the north and forced them to pay tribute to slaves. Imam Banjul, a famous Padri leader, reputedly owned 70 slaves and rejected his own sheikh's call for gentle persuasion. The servile population of eastern villages cultivated fields and mined for gold in the 1860s. Most slaves freed by the Dutch in 1876 had entered servitude through war. The eradication of the slave trade was one of the three Dutch demands that contributed to the outbreak of war with the Sumatran Sultanate in, in Aceh in 1873. The United States consul in Singapore insisted on measures against piracy and slavery. Aki's negotiators replied that the Americans should let us know if we have at any time dealt with our countrymen and selling them to other nations as slaves. So they're obviously picking up on the hypocrisy of the uh, the condition of the slave trade at the time that was changing. Further, a Dutch allegation that Aki has carried on slave trade by selling and buying slaves. This was disingenuous and, and from their view, for slaves were imported, not exported by private traders, not by the state. The Dutch instituted a naval blockade to prevent slave imports from Nias and decided to ban slavery itself in 1874. So we'll go down here a few more pages and take another look here. A former slave from the Congo, Yahaya B. Abdullah, known as Ramia, obtained an initiation from the Middle East and spread the Kadiria from 1905. He made a fortune in trade and the slave trade, followed in the footsteps of his former owner as governor of Bagamoya and dabbled in nationalist politics. So we're going to step up in time here with the Wahhabi takeover of the Arabia Peninsula. Muhammad Abd al-Wahhab, 1703-1792, preached a literalist form of Islam in Central Arabia from 1736. Adepts called themselves Wahhabim or Wahhabis, but the name Wahhabi stuck to them. The, the Saudi family adopted these beliefs in 1744 and imposed them over much of the Arabian Peninsula by force of arms. They were hostile to the Sufi, Nibadi, and Shiite Muslims. They conquered the holy places of Islam, Mecca and Medina in 1802 and 1804. They wrecked the installations around the Prophet's grave in Medina in protest as idolatrous practices, expelled from the holy places by the Egyptian army in 1812 to 1813, and comprehensively defeated by 1818. Saudi forces regrouped in the Najab region of Central Arabia. Abdul 
Saud restored a smaller state. He gained economically from the flourishing slave trade, straining relations with Britain from the 1840s. By 1870, it was estimated up to a third of the population of parts of this state consisted of blacks. So pressure is growing over time. The League of Nations complaining that the pilgrimage was a major source of slave trading, renaming his state Saudi Arabia in 1932 and, and seeking to join the League of Nations. Abdulaziz promulgated new regulations in 1936. Imports of slaves by sea were prohibited because the Sharia banned enslaving or buying subjects of countries in treaty relations with Muslims. Slaves could still come overland, but only with proof of their servile status. All owners and slaves were to be registered. Liberation was promised to those enslaved in ways contrary to Sharia after the foundation of the kingdom, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia in 1926. Slaves were to be treated well and could insist on buying their own freedom. This decree was patchily forced, especially as oil wealth boosted demand. Saudi Arabia sucked in Baluchi children from Iran-Pakistani borders. Nazarene girls from the Syrian mountains were sold like cattle, and even local Arabs were enslaved. With Oman, slave raiding broke out to seize blacks and Persians belonging to rival tribesmen. Eunuchs were retained to work in the holy places. And you got to remember, this is in the 1930s, 1920s. Muhammad Qutb at first seemed to condemn slavery, attacking communists, seducing Muslim youths by portraying Islam as reactionary and futile because of sanctioned slavery. Indeed, he stated that this is perhaps the most odious form of doubt exploited by communists. He further denounced the vicious crimes perpetrated by some Muslim rulers in the name of Islam, including enslaving Muslims and trading in slaves, contrary to perfect equality among men. However, he went on to demonstrate the superiority of slavery in Islam over all other historical forms of slavery and stated that Muslims were obligated to enslave captives taken in war against infidel nations. He noted in passing that 47.4 in the Quran condemned the freeing of prisoners of war taken as slaves. So you can see that it's a tenet of Islam and it's not so easily changed over time. It goes on to say, Abdul al Maududi, the leading South Asian neoliberalist, was intransigent on the subject of slavery. In articles originally written in 1935 and published in English in 1972, he violently denounced Islamic timidity. The Europeans found fault with slavery, and the Muslims averred that it was absolutely lawful in Islam. He upbraided Muslims for being ashamed of slavery, holy war, and polygamy, and other fundamental aspects of their faith, unaware that to alter any part of Islam was to undermine the entire religious edifice. And what we're beginning to surface as we work our way through these episodes and we learn these areas of history, we're starting to realize that the whole issue of human freedom is is really the whole crux of human history. And we're going back to look at how in 1773, the establishment power structure that was operating under the pseudonym Illuminati at the time have their agenture, their apparatchiks, their change agents operating through different radical groups. And these are specifically engineered provocateurs who are designed to to cause a certain conflagration, to operate in an asymmetrical way, disjointed from their actual true political intentions, and to operate in a subversive radical group which has a specific design. So that's why you're going to see the Jacobins kind of come into existence and then go out of existence after they have completed their mission. And creating a widespread violent outbreak where the, the mob 
is beheading everyone that they can grab in the streets and hundreds of thousands of people are being killed is not exactly a real political revolution. It's just a massacre. It's just an anarchic, violent bloodshed. And so we can see that this was all the same thing that happened in Haiti. Haiti was a revolution where men fought for to free themselves, but in the end, they became so violent, they even destroyed the entire white population and tried to create their own political vacuum. And it wasn't about creating liberty for everyone. It was about a fit of blind rage and piracy. It was an attempt to just take over the system. And so there was no intellectual or political backing. This was very different from what happened in the American Revolution as the men used violence in a limited way in order to, to win their political liberty. But then after they did so, they ensured that law and order, political stability and liberty and justice would actually come into being. So when the revolution ended, then the work of governing and self-governance came into play. And so we have the, the use of these radical groups and subversive groups operating all throughout history. I mean, even more recently, there's a lot of new articles now, and we'll have to see 50 or 80 years later what history actually reveals, but there's a lot of people talking about the influence of the CIA within ISIS or the Islamic State, which was just recently destroyed. And so you can see that ultimately ISIS operated as a radical subversive group that had specific political intentions in mind that were not disclosed. And so you're going to see that this is the formula for the Illuminati, that they're going to operate behind different masks, different names, different supposed political agendas, then they're going to, in a clandestine way, work to achieve their true intention behind the scenes. The same thing happened with Bolshevism. The people rose up in a somewhat natural political revolution in the early 1900s and 1905, but then by 1917, Trotsky and Lenin were being financed, brought from, literally brought on a ship from New York City, and they were being financed by international bankers with gold. This is well established in history, and we'll get to it in later episodes, but ultimately they came in there to take control of the Russian Revolution and to steer it in the direction that global power structure had in mind. So, in the same way in South America, a lot of the South American countries have been overrun by communist agitators, FARC groups, and uh, Sandinistas, for instance, who achieve who have financing and who have violence and who achieve a political end. It's not what they originally were stated to be achieving, and then after the political agenda is completed, then they go out of existence and disappear. The same thing with the KKK, the same thing with the Knights of the Golden Circle. Men, these are all typically going to be fraternities, and that's a telling sign when men are operating in a fraternity with no outsiders, only men that are initiated into their group. It's the same thing with the KKK. They operated, they created, they had a radical agenda, they were provocateurs, and they served their purpose. And even today, these radical groups are pointing to another radical group, the KKK, to, to be a justification, even though they don't even exist anymore. Same thing with the Knights of the Golden Circle, same dynamic. They were there to be a presence and to be a power structure to serve their purpose, and then they disappear. So these are conspirators, and that's what's most interesting about the Illuminati, and that's where we get into the conspiracy theory stuff, um, where we can put on our aluminum foil hats. But ultimately, these groups are going to operate in darkness. They're going to go out of their way to make sure that they're operating in total secrecy. And so historians have a difficult time later on piecing it together. And usually it takes 50 or 100 years before we can look back and get all the true journals and the true documents and really see what was happening. So today we're looking at Antifa and BLM. 
And again, these are groups that are clandestine, they're operating in the shadows, they're funded by unknown sources, and they're here to create violence. They're operating by a political program that's a stated political goal, but behind the scenes, they're achieving very different goals. So they're not going to come out and say, we're Marxist killing squads. They're going to come out and say, we're Black Lives Matter. And it's a very clever racist name that no one can really depose, because in deposing BLM, it presupposes that you're therefore racist. And, and another another point is that early America had the Sons of Liberty, and they dressed up as Indians, and it had the Tea Party and threw the tea in the bay. So these were men who were operating in a secret society of the Sons of Liberty, and then they pretended that they were Indians, so that the Indians would be blamed, and then they, they created the conflagration, the Tea Party. And, they, and these men, uh, the Sons of Liberty, may not have been controlled by the Illuminati, but you can see that that's the formula for political change. And as we're moving through this material, it should become clear that the fight for human freedom is not a simple subject. The struggle for humanity to rise out of oblivion of abject servile ignorance and absolute enthrallment on their knees to the power of the state is a really a centuries-long epic. It is still in many ways playing out. It was necessary for a political revolution that could free men who were educated enough and wealthy enough to break free of the despotism of feudal monarchs to be educated in those things that were forbidden to them and to common men and to courageously take up arms in the dangerous acts of self-liberation. The American patriots being Protestant and Baptist freemen and in many cases indentured servants were interested in establishing political liberty and they did not kill the British subjects who remained loyal to the crown who were in their populace and they did not destroy the entire population of black slaves. Quite the opposite. Many black men gained freedom in the American colonies and even would come to own slaves of their own because some of the first states in the Union banned slavery and others did not. And that is what is meant by states' rights. The southern states, many of whom in that population were predominantly Roman Catholic, would have the support of the Pope. Again, this cynical move by the papacy is just another example of the political opportunism of the Vatican, which speaks out of both sides of its mouth in denouncing slavery on one hand and then supporting the southern states' sovereign right to, to the slave trade on the other hand. And their political advantage lay in dividing the union of the states and provoking an internecine clash intended to end the American Revolution forever. And ultimately, they looked at the Americans as a bastard state, a state of slaves, heretics, and witches, and nothing more. So we're at the next part now where this is the uh, the Ellis Washington report online. It has a really interesting write-up, myths and facts about the influence in the French Revolution, and the little opening part here that says the Jacobins pressured by the mobs, the National Assembly deposes the king, and then effectively dissolves a new radical political group known as the Jacobins come to power in 1792, led by the influential Maximilian Robespierre. Robespierre was a very outspoken and prominent figure in the years leading up to the revolution. So those are the bullet points. So we'll start to read through this article. I think we're in part three of the article at this point. The French Revolution and the Illuminati influence had such an effect on the future of Europe that one can trace all totalitarian movements such as communism, fascism, Nazism, and socialism to organizations that were giving, given rise in the French Revolution. Prologue to a utopia or dystopia. Again, we asked this question earlier. Are, these, are the motives of these mobs to ultimately to hurt us? or to harm us. They have very virtuous motives that they state openly, so everyone can virtue signal their support towards the 
platitudes, but in turn, the actual actions of the group are not challenged when they don't line up with their stated open position. So prologue to a utopia or dystopia. What is a utopia? It is a mythological society where everything is perfect and there is no suffering. What is a dystopia? It is the opposite or the aftermath of what atheistic utopia devolves into after a few years. Tyranny, perversion, pathology, poverty, ignorance, crime, genocide, democide. Did you know that the subject of today's review, the French Revolution, 1789-1800, was a utopia? A few years ago, I did a series of essays on the iconic book of this subject matter, Favorite Book of Utopias, edited by John Kerry. While the Favorite Book of Utopias contains well over 100 examples of utopias by writers from our earliest history down through the ages to modern times, one thing they all have in common, they all ended in a tragic, catastrophic failure, an abandonment, or in most cases, either a genocide or a democide. And a democide is the act of the government destroying its populace after disarming it. That's what's generally mean by democide. This is part three of my review of Art Thompson and his series on American history. It is very subtle that the influence of the Illuminati on the French Revolution is ever brought up, and what it is, and what is denied, that there is any influence, so that that influence is underplayed. The influence of the Illuminati on the French Revolution existed, as we have seen in earlier segments, as stated by Winston Churchill. The problem with this segment of history and the role of the Illuminati is that there are those who deliberately obfuscate the role of the Illuminati and constantly deny the Illuminati influence. Then there are those who have not looked deep enough. Lastly, there are those who do not understand organization and its importance historically and politically. The value of organization is very important in understanding how movements start and grow. There are some historians who say that less than 30 members of the Illuminati were involved in the French Revolution, therefore they couldn't have had much influence on the revolution at all. Let us give an example of how a couple of dozen people working in concert can affect the outcome of a revolution. First of all, we see Illuminati members such as Filippo Buonarotti, 1761-1837, Buonarotti, who started the Sublime Perfect Masters, another secret society. Several lodges of these masters were established in France, controlled by the Illuminos Buonarotti during the revolution. The Asiatic Brethren, at the time the Illuminati leadership was unknown, they just thought it sprung up in and of itself, but it was run by Illuminist Franz Anton Mesmer, 1734-1815. That's, by the way, where we get the word mesmerized. Mesmer started 20 harmony lodges in France and ruled over them. Johann Joachim Christophe Bode, 1731-93, recruits Marquis de Savalette de Lange, the head of Paris Ami Renu Lodge. Members of this lodge were the heads of all the movements of the revolutions of 1789 and 1792. Alessandro Cali Ostro founded the Egyptian Rite Lodges all over France. Dr. Boulet started the Log Contract Social. The last, Nicholas Nicholas Bonneville, 1761-1828, started Circe Social, did likewise across France, back into Germany, and into America. So, we're getting into the discussion here in this article about all the different subversive lodges and esoteric societies, which would necessarily initiate a member into levels of secrecy that would go deeper and deeper. And all of the members who proved to be accepted and capable of keeping the secrets were allowed deeper into the concentric circles of secrecy, if you will. And we you can see how these just a few men being controlled by having control over uh, the lodges of Freemasonry and esoteric secret societies could control the French Revolution. So we're back to the work here. Now here you only have really six members of the Illuminati and the leadership of these lodges besides those that were in the Asiatic Brethren's huge influence due to the means by which they organized others into their web. Nicholas Bonneville perhaps was the most important of all these Illuminists since his organization had a profound
profound influence on America and the ultimate formation of the Nazi and communist movements. Let's quote Karl Marx and Engels on this, and this is the quotation. This, the revolution movement, which began in 1789 in a Circe society, or Circle society, which in the middle of its course has as its chief representatives Leclerc and Roux, and which finally with Babouf's conspiracy was temporarily defeated, gave rise to the communist idea, which Babouf's friend Buenarroti introduced in France after the revolution of 1830. This idea consisted, developed, is the idea of the New World Order. Now, this is a quote from The Holy Family, published in 1844, four years before Marx and Engels published The Communist Manifesto in 1848. And they say that this is the communist idea of a new world order. We will explore this further in the weeks ahead. Now, Bonneville's circle social led the way for the innovation of many of the tactics used today in the conspiracy we battle in modern times. For instance, we, the use of semantics, changing the meaning of words, the formation of fronts, such as their Universal Federation of Friends of Truth, which had 6,000 members, published organs like the paper The Mouth of Iron, reached several thousands. Another paper they issued was the People's Tribune. As a matter of fact, they used the term Tribune in almost every newspaper founded within a few decades after this were founded based on the socialist ideas of Bonneville, who was really an Illuminist, who created a Freemasonry Lodge and stirred up the violence of the mobs during the French Revolution, which led to the guillotining of tens, maybe a hundred thousand. And they attributed their name, the name of their papers, to the Tribune. They were also a cult, and they were anti-Christian, and they formed so-called churches out of their midst to promote occultism and being against the Christian religion. Now again, we're looking at the handful of people wielding tremendous influence through organization in the building of fronts and newspapers. Semantics was used to overtone the old society and institute the forerunner of what we call today political correctness by controlling what words were socially acceptable or unacceptable. They offered new meanings to words, even the opposite of the original meaning in some cases. They even wrote a new dictionary to foster these changes. Bonneville, for instance, is accredited with introducing the greeting citizen rather than the polite manner of address in France at the time once here. Then it goes on, with another heading here, Napoleon Illuminati, with a question mark. Thomas Paine lived with Bonneville for a number of years. Benjamin Franklin was the man who originally encouraged a young Thomas Paine to immigrate to America, and we will discuss this in a future segment. Paine started the first church of philanthropy in 1797. Soon 18 of these churches were formed in Paris, and they were finally banned by Napoleon, 1804 to 1815. But at the time, the movement had already moved into America. Members of the Illuminati in France decided to call themselves at one point Philadelphus in order to throw off the authorities from what and who they really were. This, likewise, has thrown off historians as to Illuminati influence. Now, the story is too long to include herein, but as a result of the reign of terror and the ascendancy of Napoleon to the leadership of France, the Illuminati went more underground and their influence was curtailed due to the authority of Napoleon. In a nutshell, the Illuminati helped bring Napoleon to power, and then he turned on them. This is also the case later when his nephew, Napoleon III, 1808-1873, was put in power by the Illuminists, and then he turned on them as well. For those who believe that it's an impossible thing to defeat the conspiracy, there are lessons to learn from the French Revolution. For all the influence of the Illuminati after installing themselves into the leadership of France, they lost control to the Robespierre, and then Napoleon, and then again with Napoleon III. While the results of the loss of Illuminati control could be said was possibly worse under Robespierre, it was slightly better under Napoleon, and not that excessive under Napoleon III. We will get into more of that later. Then Thompson goes on to write, The French Revolution and the Illuminati influence had such an effect 
on the future of Europe, that one can trace all totalitarian movements such as communism, fascism, Nazism, socialism, to organizations that began in the French Revolution. In my opinion, he has made a strong and substantive historical assertion that you would perhaps never hear taught today by a history teacher in our communist public school systems, nor from a PhD professor of history from any of our top-level Ivy League institutions like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Cornell, University of Chicago. When you ask yourself who benefits from a communist education system based on miseducation, lies, perverted history, immorality, deceit, social deconstruction, and democide, the obvious answer you have is stated in the founding father of the genocidal and democidal French Revolution, Robespierre. And it goes on to make a quote here. The secret of freedom lies in educating people, whereas the secret of tyranny is in keeping them ignorant. That's the quote by uh, Robespierre. We go on. This is the continuation of the article. We are spending time on the French Revolution and the effect of the Illuminati on that event due to the profound influence that it had on American politics at the time, even up to today in the Western world and even in the Middle East. Americans believe the French Revolution was the same as ours. It was the American Revolution that protected God-given rights. It limited government. In other words, it gave us liberty, whereas the French Revolution was based on democracy, atheism, and gave them only tyranny. The American people were better educated in the elements of freedom, and this has always been a problem for the conspiracy in its attempts to subvert the American system. It goes on to do a John Adams quote here, but what do we mean by the American Revolution? Do we mean the American War? The revolution has affected before the war commenced. The, Amer the revolution was affected before the war commenced. The revolution was in the minds and the hearts of the people, a change in their religious sentiments of their duties and obligations. This radical change in the principles, opinions, sentiments, and affections of the people was the real American revolution. And it goes on with author Thompson in the article. Now, that was the condition before the war and the revolution would never have happened without the change in the American people. As to the need of what we needed after we obtained our liberty, John Adams had this to say, Liberty cannot be preserved without a general knowledge among the people. As you can see, knowledge is so important, and this is the foundation of the overall strategy. It goes on to say, French Revolution was the forerunner of all communist revolutions. The American Revolution, on one hand, was the beginning of human progress all around the world. In the Middle East today, the Marxist movements look to the French Revolution, not the American Revolution, as their beginning. The Egyptian Brotherhood and the Ba'ath Party were political movements that also find their origins in the French Revolution. This can be documented by looking up the Ba'ath Movement and who started it. You can do that on your own. Father Yaka, leader of the Egyptian Brotherhood in the 1960s, said this, the groundwork for the French Revolution was laid by Rousseau, Voltaire, and Montesquieu. The Communist Revolution realized the plans by Marx, Engels, and Lenin. The same holds for us all as well. So the foundations or the founders of both of these Marxist-based movements in the Middle East have stipulated that their roots go back to the French Revolution. The Ba'ath Movement has had a great effect on some of the countries of the Middle East, such as Iraq and Syria, even into Iran. You could look up the Ba'ath Movement online, and find out who their leaders were, and then look into their biographies, and you will see that they all look to the French Revolution as the beginning of their philosophy and not the Quran. So it goes on to talk about how Notre Dame was burned in France in this article. But what we're really getting at here is that the power elite will operate behind organizations which create multiplying agents and induce a population to take on the attitude and the political correctness and the doctrine and the vocabulary that they design so that they can steer the populace in the direction that they want it to move. And that's that's the meaning of their subversive groups. So we'll get into some more next time. And this is the end of episode four. And we thank you for joining the Looking Glass Forum. And I hope you come back. We have a lot more to go.